Hello, my name's Ken Barrett. Welcome to Brainland podcast number nine. Uh, a little while ago, I discovered the really interesting work of a British contemporary artist called Susan Oldworth, who'd worked collaboratively with neuroscientists and clinicians for over two decades. Um, and I'm delighted to say she's agreed to come on the podcast to speak about her work. So welcome, Susan. Hi, Ken. Hang on, let me find my video. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. Let's hope I've got a good brain on me today. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll. I'm sure we'll get by. You look like I have a busy studio back there. I know it is very busy studio there. <laughs> it's great to have another artist on. Anyway, that's a. Uh, we, we've had various uh, disciplines. Mm. But, uh, how how long have you been running it for? Um, well, only since about April. Initially, it was just to give background to the, the opera, but it seemed such a, a nice idea that I thought, well, I'll ask some people. And lots of people have said yes. So we've got two more booked. And, uh, <laughs> well, so we forth. love talking about ourselves. Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose it is. <laughs> <laughs> but also, it's interesting to be part of a community, so it's great. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and it's an interesting sort of mix, this really. So, mm. so going back to you, though, your background, I mean, does yeah. art science or medicine? and run in your family? No, I come from a long line of ladies' hairdressers. Oh, right. <laughs> They're very um, creative. I wouldn't say that's not the art, so actually. That's not... No, the art does. My grandfather was a fantastic watercolourist right. um, and um, just painted hunting scenes because he came from the countryside, but he was totally untrained. And, you know, in another time, he would have, you know, probably made a very good career as a, as a painter. So we always respected art in our family. You know, everyone thought what you know, we used to watch him as kids. He painted every day. We used to sit and watch him painting. So um, there was a sense that art was important, which was nice. Well, hairdressing is interesting because you're, you're sort of working with your hands, aren't you? And, and uh, very creative, kind yeah. of creative and socially interactive. And, yeah. and as you can pay a great deal of money for people to. Uh, to exactly. And I've also... Um, I've used human hair a lot in my work as well. Oh, right. Oh, well, that's interesting. As a resident. Yeah. So, uh, but I know you initially studied philosophy. So when did you kind of first self-identify as an artist, decide that's the path you were going um, It's a good question. I mean, I, I went, you know, I was a clever kid. So I was a scholarship girl to a sort of grammar school. And um, they didn't like people going to art school in those days. I mean, I I wanted to be an artist. I knew that's what I wanted to do. But we were we you know we couldn't take art A level and we couldn't apply to art school. So I I was very interested in um, in fact continental philosophy, particularly existentialism, when I was at school, and um, went off to study um, pure philosophy, which was much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I thought it was just shooting my mouth off about ideas, but the, the discipline of it, I mean, what I love about having studied philosophy is one is to identify some of the sort of philosophical questions I'm interested in. And also it means I'm not scared of reading any texts, because if you can read Hegel in translation, I think you can read anything. <laughs> well, yeah, you can do that contemporary art uh, theory, can't you really? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so, I mean, what was the first, did you have a thing with you, something you made or a project you did that you thought, oh, now I'm on track sort of thing? This is, what's the first thing you thought, yeah, this is worthwhile, I think I can do this? Well, I, so I studied philosophy and then I, in fact, just by chance got into graphic design as a career. So I was working as an art director um, in magazines for many years and then um, 
had a family and decided to go back to art school then. Um, and um, so I was making work and, and selling it quite happily. But what really started me off in this this um, path about consciousness and um, the brain was I collapsed in my studio one year. I was um, I was making a lot of commissions for Christmas and I was a smoker in those days. So I was smoking white spirits, ink everywhere. And I collapsed with a suspected brain hemorrhage, which thank goodness wasn't. Um, but um, I ended up on Christmas day in 1999 on an operating table um, looking into my own brain as it was being scanned in real time. And that just blew my mind. I thought I'm watching myself think and thinking myself thinking about it whilst looking at the imagery. And so I contacted the uh, consultant who'd done the scan and he let me work with him at the hospital for two years, um, watching him work with permission on, on other patients. Wow, and, so, so that was negative, that scan, that was okay, was it? it the was scan was negative, thank off. goodness, yeah. yeah. But it sort of but, blew your mind, the fact that you, that you, you were looking inside your head. and Yeah, and it was it. a moment of, you know, it was, an, it was an epiphany, really. I just, and then from then on, I found it also very beautiful because I think brain scans look a bit like sort of Chinese prints. They are beautiful things in a way, and um, and so I started to find to read about consciousness, think about the relationship between the body and the self, and off I went. And you're still down that rabbit hole, you know. You're, you're still sort of pursuing. It's it's it's. it's I go with. No, I go. I, I mean, at moments I'm feeling quite political because I'm quite anxious about um, the state of politics in in Britain. Quite anxious. I'm completely anxious. Right. So, um, so I'm making some political work at the moment. Depend, but it is the core of me is the relationship between the brain and our sense of identity that really fascinates me. Well, let's come back to those two things. Can I just go back a bit though? Because I know storytelling in various forms recurs in you. You did some really interesting work about your family history. You had an Italian link. I, I, mm. I Can you talk about that project? A bit? Yeah, it's it's in fact it's a current project that's just going to come. It's going to come to London next year called Belongings. Um, that was a project. This is the political one. I got so upset at the language around um, refugees and migrants that's being um, put about by by the current um, Tory politicians calling people swarms now we have hurricanes yeah. and if we look and I come I'm third generation Italian so it's very my Italian background has been very important to me um, but I'm also English because that's all I've known you know so I have these two cultural strands and it's never occurred to me that I'm not wanted. I'm not, a, you know, I'm a migrant. I, and and um, although I understand, you know, I, so I thought it was good to unravel it because I think that art can't change policy, but it might influence minds. So I decided to make a project, an embroidery project, where I told my grandmother's story because I happened to have the nightdress that she bought with her in her suitcase when she came from Italy to England in, in 1923, 100 years ago. Wow, that must be a powerful sort of object. It was powerful. And in fact, she wanted to be buried in it, but she wasn't. And so I felt this object was imbued with her in a way. And I so I embroidered that. And then I've been working for a few years with the Royal School of Needlework, who whose students often do one of my projects as, as part of their BA project. And um, we told the story on a, on a series of embroidered clothes that I imagined would have been 
in her suitcase. Wow. So, 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 did you design the the, the the images like a sort of comic book way? I mean, or did they? Do what I did. I I wrote the story and I embroidered my piece. And I always believe if you collaborate with other artists, and in these students were artists, that you must give them total freedom. Well, total in as much as total freedom within boundaries. So I gave them the story, I gave them the clothes, and I gave them the threads to work with. And um, and then I went to teach them, and then they brought me their ideas, and we talked them through. So in a sense, it's an ex it's a very collaborative exhibition. Wow! So that must have been. And, and is this a, is was this one in Lincolnshire? Is it? Is it, it was in Lincolnshire yeah, in Sleaford. Uh, is, there's a, is, it, is, is embroidery particularly big in Lincolnshire? Lincolnshire is it a particularly? Um, yeah, in, in the gallery there is called the Hub, and it's the um, British Centre for um, Design and Craft. So they are very, very keen on embroidery work there. Can anyone pack it a bit? Because embroidery, it's so sort of charged, isn't it, really? It's embroidery got is... Yeah, embroid well, it's, if you want to tell a real story um, and you've written it in words, and of, often my work, I'm trying to work out the sort of visual equivalence. How do I tell that story in without words in a way but the words in this case were so important and I wanted it to be that something that people visiting the the show could read and understand right. so embroidery was a way of it's an art as well as a craft I think it's slow and contemplative it's often done by women but not exclusively and um in this case because it was the story of my grandmother traveling with a small baby on her own um I felt it was interesting although there was um, a couple of male students who worked on it, it, it was fine too. I felt that the story needed unpicking in that way. And it was a way of the, the students used words in a way that they turned the, each word, it was done like it was handwritten or it was, um, some of the words were huger, huge, so that they made the story, um, the text really beautiful as alongside these, it was all on antique um, pieces of clothing, a lot of it on baby clothing, and they got very moved by it. The students themselves said they, you know, they shed a few tears when working. And then, of course, you start talking, and many of them come from migrant backgrounds. It might be first generation, second generation, third, fourth generation. And so I suppose in a way we were sewing, but we were also through sewing unravelling the history of what it means to be British, which is complex. Did they do this sort of individually at home? Was there any communal sort of work? Because I mean, it's no, it was done completely communally. Because well, they must have done some at home, but it was part of their. It was one of the projects on their BA course. So, oh, right. and they um, they taught at Hampton Court Palace, so it was wonderful to go and teach them there because <laughs> they have the rooms in this wonderful building. And you think about the generations of embroiderers that have worked there. So there was a huge history as well, which was really beautiful to tap into. I mean, I saw this, the, the uh, Mary Queen of Scots embroidery. There's something that she'd sort of smuggled these sort of anti-things mm. uh, in that might have actually got her executed because she did something in embroidery. It's, yeah. it's, it's extraordinarily powerful, isn't it, really? Is it it is, and there's also a history of trade union banners being of embroidered. Course, yeah, so. Yeah. so I think that, that there is a powerful history of embroidered words being used in a political context. Um, and I was really, you know, pleased to tap into that as well. Yeah. Wow. And do you, do you enjoy it physically? I mean, because it's obviously a, a physical practice. Isn't I it? do. It's, it's very interesting. I do knitting and I do. I like embroidery um, and I embroidered on my grandmother's nightdress. I printed a photograph of her on this nightdress as if she was embodying it. 
and I sewed this huge gold halo around her, which took me three months to embroider. Um, and interesting, it, it compares very well with my printmaking because in my printmaking, I'm complete. I'm the opposite. I want. I go at it a hundred miles an hour. Really so right. it's a really interesting contrast of technique. It's a beautiful image that I've I've seen that online. When is it? Is it coming? Is he having another show? This yeah, it's coming to um, King's College London um, in November 2024 as oh. part of their um, um, uh, program about um, refugees. So that will be so um, yeah, 24th of November. I think it's going to open. Is that the is that, it? it just it's yeah, it's just actually it's in Bush House, which is oh, interesting. Right. It's opposite. I'm a king. No, it's actually no. Kings now own Bush House. No, no. I, I used. I was at Kings. So. Uh, oh, uh, were you? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I was walking past it the other day, and so they've taken over this whole thing. All the old. I know. And there. given the the history of Bush House as the home of the World Service for the BBC. Yes. I thought it was a really extraordinarily good place to show oh, the world. Wow. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. So when is that when is that starting? That, that one? Not till next year, twenty fourth of November, twenty twenty four. Oh right. Oh, well, I will definitely sort of take that in really so can i come back i mean on the embroidery point the thing that i think most attracted me to well first attracted me to you was your epilepsy project which you know sadly got curtailed by by covid yeah That's, again embroidery was involved and and um can you talk about yeah that was that was a really interesting commission um i was commissioned by some scientists who were working on a new treatment for epilepsy um which was a treatment that would um involve an implant in the brain um, that would be um, that they would use um, light therapy to switch off the electricity that was happening during an epileptic fit. Optogenetics. I mean, that is really it's optogenetic, really it is. You know, and it's very, I mean, this is very radical early stage experimentation. Yeah. So I was brought on board with another artist to make work um, about what they were doing. And it's not, when you get commissioned like that, it's not about illustrating what they're doing, the scientists. It's about um, looking at the politics of it, also looking at the, I mean, I was interested in human hybridity. You know, if you have an implant, what does, yeah. does that do? Mind you, I'm having a hip replacement next week. And <laughs> is that, you know, that makes me a hybrid as well, you know. In, well, there's this idea of transhumans now as well, that you, you yeah. have something to enhance your brain power, isn't it? Exactly. But I know optogenetics has been used in it's been experimented on in mice, hasn't it? Really, yeah. The idea that you shine a light and that generates an electrical current in your head, which could turn off the seizure. That's the idea. I, know. I suppose. I, I mean, mean, extraordinary. It is extraordinary, and it could, you know, for many people who can't take drugs or can't have surgery, it would be a, a you know, a wonderful thing. So, I wanted. To, I think in my work, I always like to bring out the human story, if possible. Yeah. So. I worked with the Epilepsy Society and they put me in touch with their members and I sent them um, a questionnaire and asked if any of them would be interested in writing their narratives and their testimonies about what it's like, because epilepsy is so secret. I mean, it affects one in a hundred people, which must mean that many politicians, many people in the public, I have it, but no, no one talks about it. And I think that it's very, very um, alienating for people um, living with the condition if if it's not in, in the public domain. So um, I decided to make an installation that would tell their stories. And I wanted, I wanted again, I wanted to use antique clothing. So I used underwear because the idea that the story is hidden underneath the surface. And I also wanted to use UV light. 
So I needed to use white clothing because that would respond to the UV light. And the words were sewn again by the students at the Royal School of Needlework using UV thread so that it would respond to the light. And so not only did it tell their stories, this great sort of blanket of, um, of work. So a hundred pieces, hundred people told me their stories, which was very generous. Um, but also we wanted it to move in the algorithm of an epileptic brain. So I was also working with scientists, wow. computer experts. So we we worked out the algorithm of an epileptic brain and we programmed the installation to move like that. And then to suddenly... Sorry, is this a seizure then? You say the yeah. And suddenly there's a seizure and the whole thing stops. Right. Oh, right. OK. And starts up again. So it was, um, it was an amazing project. Um, but sadly, I mean, we got it on the wall and it was... Oh, well, I, it was hanging from the ceiling um, and um, it curtailed, it, you know, the COVID curtailed it all. And it was such an expect. We were on a very big Welcome Trust grant and I don't think anyone else will. Well, I can't find anyone else to fund it because it's a hugely expensive installation. Yeah. And that, this was in the northeast, wasn't it? That was, uh... Is it the Hatton Gallery in Newcastle? Oh, right. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's I mean, it's, it's fairly well documented on online. It does, it does look extraordinary, really. Yeah. yeah. This rhythmic sort of moving up and down of these. these mm. No, it was really exciting. And the sound of it as well. You know, there were, um, I think, 30 motors were whirring along. So, oh, so that was the sound, was it? Okay. So the soundtrack is very sort of engaging. Yeah. And the first time the audience saw it, they just spontaneously burst, uh, burst into applause at the oh. end, which was just, yeah. you did feel you needed to respond to it. No, it's very performative, isn't it, really? Yeah. It, 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 it looks like that. And yeah. Um, yeah, what well, what's such a pity? It can't. Uh, it, is there a longer? Because I've I've seen sort of short extracts. Is there a longer sort of film about it? That, uh, um, that you no, there's there's a no, there's a there's a longer film, but it doesn't show much more of it. I've got extracts on my phone, but we didn't. You know, we were going to document it, but yeah. then we didn't know COVID was going to happen. No, no, of course. In not. the way it did. So, but but the installation itself. I've still, as you can see in the studio behind me, I have loads of boxes full of these beautiful embroidered clothing. And there is a way of installing the show, which isn't a, a kinetic show. It's just a series of, um, I think you could have a series of, like people in conversation, these clothes could. So there's different ways I could run the exhibition. It's really powerful just if they were just hanging in a, in a, yeah. in a gallery space, wouldn't it, really? Yeah. Something... And particularly if you group them in different ways so that people could look around them and yeah. engage with them. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's all about an installation like that. I think that could, yeah, it would be yeah. really yeah. And easy to get to. I think, you know what I mean? If it was just one space, I would have thought it'd be a lot cheaper to put on somewhere. Yeah, no, I, that is completely manageable. So it's really matter, a matter of me now finding, um, find researching a gallery that's interested in um, putting it on. I mean, one of the problems of COVID is that, that galleries have m much less money than they used to. And they often prefer to show work that's never been shown before. So yeah. it's hard to get under the skin of it, but not impossible. I'm a fighter. <laughs> right. I mean, it sounds like um, I know a lot of your pleasure is the process. So really, you know, although that was curtailed and that's the punchline. Yeah. It's just, it, yeah. it sounds like you just thrilled by the, the collaborative process of, of, yeah. sort of doing this, this stuff, isn't it really? What, what was, when you, when you had your, your scare and, and your mm. And then you worked for two years. Then you were then working with the imaging, the images really. And and I know until 
um, sort of 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, the only way the brain got to manifest itself was as a wiggly line on a bit of paper. Really. Mm. So the, or, or through dissection. Or through, yeah, through dissection. Yeah. But in the live, the sort of living brain. Yeah. Really. Um, I mean, there was a, a character we, we have in the opera, um, Gray Walter, actually invented a thing based on radar technology in 1949. Wow. Uh, where he had 22 oscilloscopes in an array, mm. and then in real time, he showed um, the way the brain was changed, but not as a wiggly line. He, he had a sort of spiral that was changed. So it was like flowers and things. The trouble is it's so damn complicated that it was no use. <laughs> it was no use uh, scientifically. And so in the end, he, 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 I think he acknowledged that it was more art than sciences. Oh, amazing. I must look, I'll look him up. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link, actually, because I actually did an animation based on his drawings in... Um, oh, did you? Well, send me a link to your work as well. That'd be really yeah. fascinating. Um, but... Uh, as you said, they're so beautiful, some of these, particularly fMRI images in, in colour. I mean, how mm. do you work with that as an artist, really? Because just the brain is doing this via technology, isn't it, really? Yeah. And you've well, got to do something yourself with it. I mean, the images are interfered with. I mean, they are made beautiful by the um, scientists and clinicians that work with them. I mean, then they are sort of not interfered with, but they're, they're made to visual. Um, I don't use them so much anymore because I feel they're overused, if yeah. I'm honest. I think it's become sort of um, a shorthand for the brain and the human condition. I did make um, a series of works some years ago, well, probably 20 or 30 years ago, called Cogito Ergo Sum, which was um, using brain scans. I blew them up big, so I wanted to change the scale of them. Okay. And I made a series of, from, a real, from my own brain scans, and I just did, I put the imagination at work inside them so that they have imagery inside them, they're digital work. And I wanted to make the point that um, brain scans are actually, you know, they're structural pictures. They, they don't show the soul. They don't show the imagination. They show the structure of the brain and the body in that way. And so um, I, I made this piece of work suggesting what it might look like if the images did show your, I mean, it does show your thinking, but it doesn't show it any more than as a process. What was is was that sort of collage or, or was it overlaid images or did... Well, I did it in Photoshop, so it was um yeah, so it is sort of it's overlaid in Photoshop. And, and it how was big were they when they were, were displayed? Sort of how, how big were the how big were the images? It's the it, it's um the whole piece is two and a half meters high, so it's big. Oh okay, so it's a right, okay. Yeah, so it's human size, yeah. So I think they're fifty centimeters square each each part of the each image in the MRI scan. In, so you've worked for over 20 years then with brain-related issues. Yeah. Which has been the most challenging, would you say? And, and on the other side, the most rewarding, really? Uh, most challenging um, was, um, well, the most exciting was I was invited once to go and watch um, a brain dissection at um, the Brain Bank at Hammersmith Hospital in London. And um, during it, they, they lay out the, the brain slices very formally on metal plates. And I just had this sort of moment and I thought, gosh, I wonder if I could make an etching, because they look like etching, big zinc etching plates, the trays that they were putting the brain slices on. So I talked to the professor who ran the brain bank and, and said, you know, is there any chance that you would let me print directly from a human brain and um, slice? And he took it to the ethics committee and they agreed because they thought it would make more interest for people in, in the brain bank because they're always looking um, particularly with Parkinson's patients for donation. 
And he also felt it would honor people who did leave their brains to science. And so I was given the brain, I was allowed to have the brain, some brain slices for two days and he had to accompany them. I wasn't allowed to. And I went to work with my um, very good friend, Nigel Oxley, who's a master printer. And we made a series of etchings from the human brain slices called transients. And they are, I think, the most profound work I've ever made. Wow. How did you do that then? How did the etching... Um, well, the brain slices, we, we didn't know, if, having said I wanted to do it, you never know if you could do it. We did no, some no, no. experiments on lamb's brains beforehand, but um, the brain slices are kept in formaldehyde, yep. which is greasy. And so, so when... Are these like one centimetre thick slices? Yeah, they're like one okay, centimetre okay. thick. They didn't go through the press, so I we put them directly on the etching plate right. and we then... Um, put an aqua tint around them so we get some tone and then took the um, brain off the plate and then fired the aqua tint and the grease from the brain slice left a resist on the plate and when we etched it we got the most beautiful marks they were extraordinary works wow that's extraordinary yeah because because the, the the insulation of brain cells is is fat basically isn't it yeah, yeah. and so, so that was I mean, as I say, it could have been a complete disaster, but they are, I think, the most profound work I've ever made because they're a complete portrait in a way in themselves. And it, and it must have, I mean, I, when I was 18, I went to medical school and we did mm. dissection that first year. It was much yeah. too young. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was just like, oh, yeah. right, you know, you almost have to shut off. To yeah. It's and then cool. when I was a consultant in my uh, sort of late 30s, I then saw brain dissection. And I, I like you, I was completely... Mm. Really. Mm. This, this, you know the power of, of this yeah. uh, of this object you know, is, yeah it's extraordinary and, and i'm yeah as you say i'm sure i mean i'm, I'm surprised somebody you know who's the german guy who does preserved bodies you know oh he, um uh, von hagen's yeah von hagen yeah i mean i imagine him doing something you know some donating the a brain to him to let him do i mean he's different obviously he's plasticizing isn't he and, and, yeah uh, mind you i mean in the early days there was a lot of scandal around where he got his bodies from really they were lo they thought he was buying Chinese prisoners and all sorts of things. So oh, goodness, yeah. I know. So I don't know. I'm sure he's sorted the ethics out now. But it is I mean, I, I went to some dissections and it's um at some point in my career, and it's very moving that people leave their bodies to science. The idea of wanting to do good for the future, even though yeah. you can't be there. Um and also I was really shocked at how little we all have these bodies and how little we know about them, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we obviously know more than we've ever known, but it, it, you just discover new um, unknowns. Mm. So, so you've worked with brain scans. You've worked with the 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 stories um, relating to. That. I know you did something on sleep, though. I want you to talk about that. Sleep. I, I yeah. Think that's lovely the way you convey that that one. Really. Can you talk about that project? Well, sleep. Um, it was another I tend to get obsessed with my question is always what makes us human and then it seemed to me okay eight hours a day about we all sleep and there's very little philosophy written about sleep in history nearly none so it's always thought of as a negative state but current sleep scientists have realized that the brain is as active during sleep as it as when we are um, awake and the questions are you know why do we need to sleep what's happening during sleep and so um, I got to work with some sleep scientists at Guy's Hospital and I was just and I got to talk to a lot of um, 
patients with um, sleep disorders um, and saw the impact of not being able to sleep on, on, on your life. And, and then I thought, well, this is the first time I've worked on a subject that everybody, or apart from consciousness, that everybody ha does. I mean, if you don't sleep, you die. Mm -hmm. And so I've got all this research. I talked to the doctors. I saw scans. I saw everything. And then I was left, how do you visually represent something that's that's dark and sleep and no one can remember being asleep particularly. So um, I decided to use a pillowcase as the metaphor for sleep. So I then started, that was the first embroidery project, got people to embroider their feelings about sleep onto pillowcases. That's such a nice idea, the police. It's kind of obvious, but you know what I mean? I know it is obvious. But it, and then I also made a series of very interesting, I think they're very nice prints, and I printed onto dark paper. So I used the pillowcase as the printing pr um, plate. And so printed it on silver on dark paper with a hole in the middle. So there was like a, a vortex where you went down into sleep because you can't will yourself to sleep. You have to fall into sleep. And um, using the black paper was again a metaphor for sleep. So that was a very nice project, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, sleep's interesting because until the 1950s, it, and people were getting psychoanalysis for narcolepsy, you know, and it was only yeah. when the, the yeah. evidence of sleep levels and, and, and that the, the, the particular EEG signature of sleep, but it, it, mm. it, it was known to be like a physiological process, really. What about dreams? Has, has that, uh, have you? Dreams, I, I decided there was, I mean, there's enough art movements dealing with dreams. That's with true. Well, that's true. <laughs> and I thought it's, it's not my area. I mean, I, I love, um, reading about dreams and thinking about them but it's not the stuff that made me want to make work yeah no, i think it's uh, the neuroscience thing the fascinating stuff on default mode network and this bit of your brain which is operating when you're not doing anything mm. the idea that half of that decouples when you go to sleep and then he's becomes a novelist basically you know yeah. becomes a, a creative artist in its own right and that, I know. yeah and i got I, I was working with a scientist who was looking at very deep sleep which is um when you're um body is unlike REM sleep when your body's paralyzed but your brain's working yeah, yeah. deep sleep your body's not paralyzed um and but it seems your brain is really ticking over fast and yeah. it's just you know what what does it mean about who we are if the yeah. brain is working when we're unconscious it, to me it's fascinating yeah no well it is I heard a fascinating thing about the uh, EEGs of premature babies being like there's more often in dream sleep you know this is so why really yeah, well, that's I mean, fascinating another yeah I mean it, you know I, I'll have to look that out because it goes back mm. a long time going way back I mean did you have like in, who, who really excited you in, in, as artists you know people when you yes. were just starting out you asked I, I was thinking about that um Around that time, well, what was interesting around that time was when I started working in the 2000s, uh, early 2000s on this body of work, um, I found that I was part of, there were lots of other young artists of my generation also working on it. Um, and that was quite interesting because you think you're the only person, but you're sort of part of a zeitgeist, presumably because of MRI scanning and the body being visually permeable in new ways. So that was interesting becoming part of that. When I think back to the artists, I mean, I, I I like artists who are very humanist. So I love Goya. I love Paula Rego. Um, Meta Schmidt, who did the sculptures of human emotions. He's a very, I think he's 18th century German sculptor. He's really interesting. 
Um, oh, just, I know he does his facial expressions. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I found, you know, he was trying to visualize something that was invisible in a way. And I suppose I've always been interested in doing that, sort of visualizing um yeah, things that you can't see, making visual equivalents for mental states. That's what I like to do. Um, so Goya, I love for his humanity. Um, Leonardo, I loved. Rebecca Horn, a German artist who described her own illness in different ways, I was always fascinated by. Um, How about in your media? Because I, I know I, I, I'd, I'd seen exhibitions by Susan Hiller and Christian yeah. Bolkansky who work in lots of different sort of ways, yeah. often telling stories and particularly Bolkansky, I mean, your, your, um, your no, Susan, Susan Hiller as well. I mean, sadly, she passed away quite recently, but a great, a great artist. And um, I never met her, sadly, which was a pity. But um, and Christine Borland as well is someone else working in this area who I um, was working at the same time. And Annie Cattrell, Annie Cattrell is an artist who, a contemporary of mine, who whose work on the brain is very interesting. You know, this distinction, this split between art and science is a very strange phenomenon. And I teach on a very interesting MA at Central St. Martin's an MA on art and science and we have some fascinating students brilliant students yeah. well I migrated from one to the other and what's yeah. important to me is that when I woke in the night thinking of clinical issues or management issues yeah exactly the same bit in my brain that was waking in the night thinking of how am I going to solve this artistic issue do you know what I mean mm. so, yeah all creativity isn't it it's really? very cre all creative and uh, when I, I go into scientist labs I'm amazed at the similarities in a way between a, a laboratory and a studio and also, artists are very obsessive, you know, mm. but also are, are, are scientists. You, know, you have mm. to, you're doing a PhD, it's extremely boring a lot of the time, really, but you obsessively go over these, yeah. these experiments. And, and contemporary artists are very much like that. I just keep going Absolutely. On and when I was working in the neuroradiology department at um, the Royal London Hospital, watching them do um, angiograms of the brain, um, I was sat in a room with a window onto the operating theater and i would watch them feeding in the catheters you know sort of like this and i was sat there drawing and it was nearly you know it's like a mirror dance of yeah and and also i was very aware that some people understood the three-dimensionality of a body more than others oh yeah of course and yeah. i was very sure which surgeons i'd want to work on me by the end <laughs> when i found neurosurgery i'm mean, sorry I found neurology and neuroscience really hard and mm. I realised it wasn't just lists and that you could you could picture in three, I can think in 3D, do you know what I mean? You can I, do that. I could visualise and that suddenly when I realised that, that, oh, why didn't they talk to me like that? You know, it's all, it's all lists and sort of complex stuff really. Mm. We're going to have to stop soon, but can you talk about your most recent stuff? You said you talked about you're doing some uh, more politically oriented things. And... The political work is the the um, belongings, the, my grandmother's oh, so story. This is the Italian, this but is... I've done... Another project since then called Modern Alchemy, I was commissioned to work with a scientist up in Ed at Edinburgh University who's trying to make a more sustainable chemistry by looking to see if she can change the bonds in carbon bonds in some metals so that um, we don't have to use lithium and ro rhodium in our phones. Wow. <laughs> so it's an amazing project. So I went to her lab and we etched the plates in her lab and I'm now looking to try and etch gold plates because we use something called aqua regia, which is what alchemists use to dissolve gold. <laughs> and so I really and I and this was really interesting because chemists often can't they don't see what's going on in the their catalytic 
reactions. They can weigh it or there might be a slight change of colour. So it's very conceptual and it's based a lot, obviously, on the periodic table and no knowledge. So I'm trying to get this exhibition together called Modern Alchemy because, um, well, one, I think, you know, sustainability, it is political as well. It's about mm. thinking that we can't go on treating the planet like this. Um, but also I'm getting inside the mind of another scientist, which is a privilege and a dream. Yeah, and so you're, you're diversifying from the brain, but again, keep keeping in the science. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. So I, I'm just, I'm moving forward. Also, also what gets thrown at me that's interesting you know so so how do you do how do you go you know when you say the etching i mean one, one always thinks of you know is this doing that with acid or, or doing that with a yeah paper tool or something like that really i mean how, how do you etch from what you've just been talking about onto onto something that you can then print um by using a lot of technique and thinking it through first i I work in, my etchings are well known because I work in white line rather than the traditional black line. So I tend to work with drawn plates and aquatints, which give tones and white lines. So I plan, I work with my master printer, Nigel Oxley, and we plan how it could work. We experiment and plan how it could work. And then when I go in to work with a scientist, I've probably got an aquatinted plate to start with. And then I can use something called spit bite, which is when you actually use your spit with this acid to etch certain areas. It's a very old technique. Um, and it makes the most beautiful. So that none of all of these plates, all the marks on them are the chemistry working. It's none of them are drawn marks. So they're chemical plates. It's terribly exciting. Right. Okay. So, so that, okay. So, so you're, you're, you're mediating and you're letting them do. I'm mediating. I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of mediating through technique, but letting the chemi chemicals draw themselves. And when's that going to get announced? Um, we're looking for funding for phase two, and I need to find a gallery for that. So I'm looking around at the moment because they're beautiful, beautiful prints. Is Welcome still funding these things? Because they seem to have changed their grants. No, they don't. They they're funding. I can understand it. They're they're funding things that are going to be make the human condition better. Oh, there's a lot of mental health sort of work. Is, is yeah. But, you know, I would argue that art is equally, is an important factor in that, and they don't do the arts grants anymore. No, no, I, I noticed that, yeah. But I, I was lucky to be, but they, what you can do, if you can find someone on a welcome project who wants to work with you, they do do public engagement grants, and that can be through, oh. through that through the project they're already funding. Oh, okay. So, so some, if you, if you, if you, choose a thing yeah. that you're working on then you can get but you, it. I, it's harder to initiate it yourself which is a great well I, we're running out of time but that's actually really interesting susan so thanks so much it's for... lovely to meet you what's what i just wanted to ask you when you were a consultant what was your specialty i was a neuropsychiatry so i started out in psychiatry and then i i did a, okay. a, a doctorate in neurophysiology basically electric and i in a place where they were doing brain injury and epilepsy so i i got okay. used by that and then set up service in the midland really um but i always had this sort of art practice and in the end that took over in my late 50s i i, I retired early and did a master's and uh, fantastic um, escaped for several years and then suddenly it all invaded me again for the last decade i've worked on some history of neuroscience projects really Thank brilliant you. yeah so uh, well i'll put your obviously your website on the the episode notes mm. Uh, it's been really interesting. Thanks ever so much. It's been lovely to meet you and talk to you. I hope we talk again. Thanks. Thanks, Susan. Take Bye -bye. care. Thank you. Thank you.